Hey everybody, and welcome to the Everything Went Black podcast. I'd like to welcome back my good friend, Chris Lorden. He was on the podcast a while back, and we were talking about a book that he was working on called The Factory, which is uh, basically a chronicle of his uncle, Bob DeLillo, and his experiences uh, being incarcerated for most of his life. So the book um, has been completed, and uh, Chris is uh, you know, trying to promote get people interested so we talk quite a bit about the new book and uh, where you can get it before we get started I want to just run through the affiliate sponsors that we have uh, I'm it's no surprise to anyone that I'm a huge fan of the Onnit products uh, I use the Hemforce protein the krill oil the uh, strong bone supplements all that stuff is a huge part of my daily life and also how could I forget MCT oil which I actually put in my coffee along with uh, grass-fed butter every morning and um, helps me start my day and uh, get rolling on whatever adventures I have in store for that day. Also, uh, Datsusara, which um, they make uh, these great bags, uh, workout gear. Uh, there's even hemp chopsticks, believe it or not, available on their website. You can check both of them out by going to everythingwentblackmedia.com and just looking to the portals and uh, go through there, buy something, and then get a little taste of that transaction. Helps everything uh, move forward here, keeps the lights on, and uh, just keeps everything uh, copacetic on my end. You can follow us on Twitter at MikeHillHQ. Uh, give us a couple likes on Facebook, everything went black. And um, you know, feel free to uh, write a review on iTunes. Uh, give us a star rating. And, um, you know, that helps, every, helps everything out, and uh, that would be much appreciated. And, um, yeah, if you guys want to get in touch about anything, you know, you can always hit me up on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, so here we go. So when was the last time we had you on was a couple of years ago when you came Yeah, it was a while here. back. Was it, I was yeah. still much imp- – I thought it was much closer to the end than I really was. The editing took so much longer than I thought. Like finishing the writing was um, – the beginning of a whole new process. The editing was um, where the work really came together. It was like I had a bunch of ideas, but I didn't realize how loosely strung together they were until I really tried to make it cohesive from beginning to end. And so the editing, you know, myself and through um, one person was a main editor. I had another person contributing with ideas as well. Um, But to put that whole thing together with one cohesive, consistent voice, that's where the work really came in, Um, you know, then I'm um, checking all my sources, just making sure I had everything lined up and um, then just physically making a book. You know, there's a lot that went into that. So uh, yeah. it felt cool to do it all myself. I didn't put it in somebody else's hands and then be disappointed with the end product. Um, it was kind of nice to have that full 100% DIY control because I have in my hand exactly what I want. Yeah, that's and, awesome. And that's what I want to put out there. I didn't want to, you know this, you don't want to compromise certain aspects of it. You know, when, when we had a publisher we were going to work with, they wanted us to change the title, suggesting splitting it up into three separate books and all these wacky ideas that, yeah, I was, you know, no, (laughs) that's not what I was going to do. That's weird, man. Three books. It's like, that seems risky that your story might not even ever get completed if you do something like that, you know? Right. It it wasn't what I set out to do. It's like you go into the the studio with your demos and they they say there's going to be a double album and that's not what you were trying to do. It's, it's, it goes contrary to what your vision was. It's kind of like the use your illusion, uh, guns and roses (laughs) record where it's like fucking, 
two two really mediocre records that could have been made into one decent record, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, the, the story had three separate distinct parts. So you right. get part one, two, and three, and that's how it was intended to be, not each an individual book on its own. Yeah. Right. So I didn't care how long it was going to be at the end. I just wanted them to all be together. So so that was one of the big things, like pulling that all together. But it does feel really good to to finally have it all done. And, you know, like I said before, the signals like a new a new journey, like how, how are we going to get it out to the world at this point? And, and we're working on that and we're getting really good reception so far. You know, people are, are really dialing into that. These are issues that are important right now. So when when I first met you, like when we first got to know each other way back in like the 90s when I was living in Boston, I remember you telling me about your Uncle Bobby and uh, yeah. being, uh, you know, like, you know, the, the details of uh, his case and him being incarcerated all this time. So um, how long have you been thinking about doing this book? Like when did the thought finally cross your, into your mind that you wanted to do something like this? I mean, the idea, it was just like the more I learned about his story, I went and like pulled the archives out of the old Boston Globes and I found all these articles from the 60s and 70s into the 80s about him that verified all of his story and then a lot more than I ever knew. And when I first met you, he was still in prison. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, like he was in and, jail. And uh, in fact, when I met you, he was in solitary confinement for escape. <laughs> at that's that a time crazy period. story. Yeah. Yeah. And he, his story was just really fascinating to me. And um, the more I learned about it, it just got deeper and deeper. And I always thought I would want to kind of pull together all these different stories from all the different sources and put them down. What I was thinking was sort of a, a longer article that you might see in a magazine like The New Yorker or something like that. And that was the intent. So the first time I ever mentioned it to him, it, the approach was, I want to write an article. And very quickly, the word book came up. You know, I, I didn't set out to become an author. That yeah. was not like a bucket list thing of mine. It was, let's get this story written down. And, you know, he trusted me um, enough to take on the story. He, he had other offers from people to you know, that wanted to write his story that probably, you know, truth be told, are better writers than me and could do a better job. But um, what we did, um, the way it was many interviews, and he had to open up a bit about some tough subjects. And so I think he felt more comfortable doing that with me. Yeah. And, um, you know, I respected that in the way I approached it and wrote it down and retold it in the book. So his story is just like so many different, you know, incredible facets to it. I, I just felt really strongly that it needed to be recorded. And not only that, but what it means in the bigger picture. Yeah, you know, because look- aside from the just the actual story itself, there's an, another sort of higher level, uh, you know, objective to the writing that you did. Most definitely. Yeah. He, he was not interested in just telling a book full of prison war stories, which it easily could have been. Right. And I know people like to read that stuff. And you know, there's that element in the book. There are different stories that are just interesting from somebody who's, who's um, you know, wants to know what prison life is like. Uh, but further than that, it's uh, we wanted to make a book that had carried some social significance as far as, you know, alerting people and making them understand as to what's going on inside of prisons and the things that go on behind those walls that most people don't know about, that if they did know, they would think it was very unfair, you know, and it's not about... Um, being a bleeding heart liberal towards towards inmates, it's about like fairness and justice and some of the things that happen in there. And um, he he's very credible when he speaks to those issues. So that was part of 
what we wanted to do. And I think we, I think we achieved it. I think we got that done. The, um, for anyone who might have missed the first episode, uh, definitely go back and check it out, but maybe summarize us the essentials of, uh, of Bobby's uh, situation. Just to give sure. when, when he was 13 years old, he got sent off to the old Massachusetts reform schools, which were just notorious breeding grounds for criminals. You go in there as a young kid for shoplifting, and you'd come out on the other end a year or two later, you know, after I'd been hanging around with these teenage, you know, more advanced criminals, uh, he'd come out even more qualified to commit crime and with an even worse attitude towards authority and towards the police. And he said when he first got to prison at 18 years old, you know, most of the people, he already knew everybody when he got to jail. He knew everybody from reform school. And he learned all kinds of criminal tricks. And when he went to prison, it just continued. Um, what we were talking about in the book was once you got fed into a system like that, it's incredibly hard to get out. You know, you got stuck in this mechanism that just set you on a path that was like almost impossible to break. So that the state through the prison system was creating these people who went on to become career criminals and become bad people or, you know, in the eyes of society, at least. So he went to reform school. Then he went into prison after committing a couple of robberies. And then when he was 21, he and a friend participated in a robbery right in downtown Boston. And the robbery went bad. So they ran off and split up in different directions. And his partner shot and killed an off-duty police officer. So in Massachusetts, under the felony murder rule, they were both committing the felony of robbery and someone died. So Bobby ended up getting a life sentence, first degree murder, because they were committing a robbery and somebody died. On a side note, the other guy committed suicide before he was caught. Wow. So, so Bobby was the last man standing and he got a natural life sentence at age 21. Damn. His, uh, a quick review of what happened to him in prison was he, um, he escaped three separate times. And each one of those is a tale in and of itself. Um, and those are all detailed in the book. He was the president of the first, you know, the, um, the prisoners union where they made a very real attempt to unionize the same way workers would. Uh, and that is a book in and of itself. That's a separate book called When the Prisoners Ran Walpole. He actually uh, wrote a piece in there and was quoted heavily in there. And that story is highly interesting and, and it's spoken about in the factory as well. And he was managed to write his own appeal. And in 2003, he was released from prison. So he got out of prison after 41 years and had to walk back into a society that was dramatically different than the one he left back in the early sixties. Yeah. Um, you know, he had, he had to figure out like how to get around Boston. It looked so different to him oh, and yeah. how to just, you know, go food shopping and like all these things he never had choices in were now suddenly like these overwhelming choices from every direction and how to navigate that and survive and stay within the boundaries of the law. So that's, that's his story in a very, very brief nutshell, but then there's so many details within that structure. Uh, but that's that's sort of the overview of um, you know what happened to him in his life. Just the idea of being out of society's um, influence for you know forty something years—it's almost like being a time traveler, man, and traveling Absolutely. into the future. You know, it's yeah, insane. It, that's a very fascinating part of his story, and and um, we talk about it in the book. Is he said that when he like the day he got out. He had to go to CVS with his brother to buy, you know, toiletries. Yeah. 
and he was looking at all the toothbrushes and all the you know different styles and sizes and colors and he and he didn't he was confused he didn't know which one to pick yeah and he couldn't do it it became very overwhelming to him and he couldn't do it and so he he sort of uses that as code for when he's becoming overwhelmed just by having too many choices his whole life he was handed a toothbrush yeah now now pick <laughs> that that can be it's hard for us to imagine that but from his angle and his perspective that was um overloading his brain now when did you actually start like how many years did it actually take you to compile all the story and you know the interviews and everything i started pulling everything together and probably uh, we were talking about it the other night i think it was probably 2008 it was it was a long time ago it, it was um one interview would lead to another which would lead to me talking to somebody else and you know I had a couple of kids along the way and had to get a degree for my job. Yeah. So, well, you know, life was swirling around this whole project the whole time. Well, so one of the things I was, I was discussing this with some friends and, um, you know, I was like, you know, Chris is a, you know, you're, you're in the education system, you're a teacher, right? You have a right. full-time gig, you know, very demanding job. And also you, you also were doing extra work too. Like you were doing night, night work, you know? With, yeah. Um, I, which I still do. Yeah. Yeah. You still, you still, so you really don't have like, a lot of people say they're busy, but you're like legitimately busy. And I think you were also teaching summer school too over the years, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I work, I, I work a lot and, um, I had to fit this in and around. There was a lot of super early mornings, really late nights, any downtime. If I had an hour, I would, you know, open up the laptop. So I, if I had been able to do this, like a writer and sit at my desk for long uninterrupted periods, it would have taken me, you know, probably under two years, I estimate. But it took much longer just because I had to do it the slow way or or I wouldn't have gotten done. Yeah. So it, there were times when it got tough and you kind of wanted to give up and just put it off to the side. But you know how it is. Once once you uh, swim halfway across the ocean, you don't turn around and go back. You just yeah. keep going. Yeah, but that so that's, that's just like, you know, I was going over these facts like in my head in preparation for this. And I was like, man, like. Because I, I know out of all of us, like our friend, our circle of friends, I always feel like you probably have the tightest schedule as far as like <laughs> without um, flexibility. You know what I mean? Like I always feel like, you know, when you're a teacher, you got to be, it's not, you know, if you're working in, in industry or, you know, you have, you can kind of have a little bit of a flexibility in your schedule, but for classes and stuff, you got to be there at whatever time you got to be there. So, yeah, you gotta you gotta be on your toes. There's not a yeah. lot of flex time, and, and the job definitely isn't as easy as it looks. I know yeah. people make comments all the time where they they say things where I can tell that they think it's an easy job, or it's like some they're like, oh, good for you, like it's some cute little you know yeah. career path. It's it's uh it's much more demanding than that. It's physically and mentally exhausting, but um, I love it. It's a great job, and I've been able to commit to it. But it it has made it hard to to do some of these types of things. The reason I was able to finish it was. One of the major pushes was because, um, you know, about a year and a half ago when I stopped doing music, that freed up some time, yeah. which really allowed me to engage this instead. So yeah. now, now that this is over, the, you know, I, I still I have that time and I want to utilize that to to move this whole project forward as far as we can take it. So have you done any other any kind of promotional stuff for it yet? Like what's their game plan to, to get this thing, the word out about the book? Yeah, I mean, I've I've engaged all the regular social media channels that you normally would, and I'm I'm getting those up and running and making contacts. I've already begun meeting people and meeting some civic groups that are out there that I I wasn't aware existed. Um, we've had certain um, we've had ongoing series of um, book group talks in Boston, and we're setting up more. And um, 
Yeah, just trying to, to reach out to other people who are on the same page. I mean, you start with your audience, but then you, of course, you want to expand that to people who hadn't previously known anything about it. I mean, we'd love for this to eventually become a teaching tool. So we've spoken to a number of um, college professors already who, who have definitely indicated interest in putting this book on their, on their curriculum, which we would love. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I mean. It sort of, in a, in a way, goes hand in hand with your career. I mean, this is definitely, um, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I wouldn't say there's an entertainment value to it. I mean, it's, it's an interesting read. However, it's not like, it's, it's a drag, some of it, you know what I mean? You read some of it and it's a fucking bum out, man. But, <laughs> it is. And yeah. I, um, I forget that sometimes because I've been over it so many times. But yeah. Because that's one of the things people have been commenting. They're like, uh, especially people who know him, they said, I didn't realize his story was so so heavy and yeah. so sad. <laughs> it, it really is. But um, as far as, um, you know, he's coming to speak to my classroom, but I feel like there's an ethical boundary. I don't want to be using my class to, you know, uh, you know, shield books to kids, yeah, <laughs> no, to totally. students. You know, it's out there. If a kid knows how to search my name, they can find that it's there, and I'm, I acknowledge it, and I'll talk about it. But I'm not trying to um, be a salesman, at least to them. If they want to, uh, you know, they'd be kind of corny if I was requiring them to buy it. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> part of the textbook, you know, <laughs> curriculum textbook. But uh, I mean, I know college professors do that routinely, but yeah, I'm not gonna yeah, do that. yeah, definitely. But I mean, there, there's a lot of different um, levels of education, though. I mean, because like just reading those stories, like, you know, I mean, I, I'm, you know, we're adult men, but also it's just like, man, I never, ever want to end up in jail. You know what I mean? I know. You never want to be part of that system because once they got a hold of you, man, you're in it, you know? And then there's also the, you know, there's just the, the aspect of the prison industrial complex that it touches on, too, which is always sort of, um, your average citizen, I don't think, understands that it's a business and there's a there's a an element of profit um, by keeping people incarcerated and how right. the system really is set up to keep people in jail. That's you know? so amazingly overlooked that it blows my mind because you hear a lot of people crying about taxes being too high, you know, and like saying things about like teachers being overpaid. I, I want to tear my hair out because look, at, if they had any clue comparatively how much we spend on prisons, it's so much more. You know, because there's there's a business behind it, there's profit behind that, and uh, you know to be talking about these other areas like oh, paying for immigrants to help them go to college and paying for teachers and students, that's not where we're losing money. Where we're losing money is just spending like millions and millions and millions of dollars on on overbuilding prisons, building prisons we don't need, passing legislation to keep people in prison much longer than they need to be, handing out life sentences like candy. You know, to like nonviolent offenders. Yeah. And, and when you make this argument, it makes it sound like you're you're just like, um, you know, you're being too light on on bad people. But that's it's not the case. I mean, I agree that people should be punished when they do bad things. But over punishing them is ridiculous. You know, sending somebody to prison for life because, you know, they sold some drugs seems a little bit ridiculous when it costs like 50 grand a year to lock someone up. Yeah. You know, definitely. do the math on that. Is that worth millions of dollars? No. And it's not. It, so the, the the profit aspect behind it really, really bothers me. Um, and that's one of the things we talked about quite a bit. You know, that's why the subtitle is A Journey Through the Prison Industrial Complex. He saw it from the inside. I was looking at it from the outside. And here's the book talking about both perspectives. Because there's a whole, I mean, you know, it's not just straight up. There's a whole industry around the prison, man. Like there's like uh, the guys who provide the food, the companies who provide the landscaping, the company, you know. Utility bills, like everything. Yeah, the food vendors, everything. Yeah, the, you know, and it's like, 
when people never think to look at it in that way about how it supports all these other industries, but it's almost like an illusion because these people, I mean, yeah, if you go out and murder someone, yeah, of course, but the over sentencing of, of criminals is, it's like this subtle thing that you can just slip by people that they don't realize. Right. And nobody feels bad for them. Nobody, if you don't know somebody or connected to somebody who's, you know, done time inside there, it's really easy to overlook and just not care. You just shrug your shoulders like, well, don't, don't break the law and say something, you know, that easy. Yeah. Um, but when they're making profits, it's, it's, you know, you have minorities and poor people are obviously disproportionately affected. They're the ones who are filling up the jails. Uh, they're not as loud politically. They don't have the same resources. You know, it's not like college kids who get busted who are filling up the jails. It's poor people. And then they come out and they have no opportunities to get a decent job. So they're just going to keep doing what they're doing and rolling the dice until they get busted and go back in. And, and the system's pretty much set up that way. So, so the factory is referencing that. You know, you take this like raw material in one end and it goes through this process and it comes out the other end, a product. And that product is this criminal that was state created. So, you know, you know not to say it's a conspiracy, but there's, there's business interests, you know, very much at stake. So if, if you read like, you know, some of these private prisons that offer to, to the state, we'll take over your prison system and we'll run it at a profit. Yeah. So they open up these massive like, you know, hotel sized prisons and they can't fill them, you know, and they operate like a hotel. They got to put people in the beds to yeah. make a profit. Totally. So they say, oh, send, you know, they'll lease out space in babysit inmates from other states. You know, so if you were doing time in New York, all of a sudden they're sending you out to Ohio. So you're not anywhere near your family or people who could come see you and help you. And that's one of the biggest things that will help you succeed when you get out is that family connection. Yeah. That's just blown out of the water. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're, they're manufacturing like repeat offenders, basically. You know, yeah, absolutely. People, Keeping you know. these vendors going. And they put one of the major private prisons it's called CCA um, in their mission statement, you know, to their shareholders. It's saying like, you know, we have to be careful. Changes in the law. If they start letting people out and they, if we incarcerate less people, um, this is going to affect our profits. It says it boldly right there. And so really they're kind of shifting towards like, um, you know, just detaining immigrants indefinitely. Oh yeah. You know, that, that's where their cash wow. cow is right now. Yeah. And that makes sense with all this like Homeland security, like borders, all this bullshit with Trump and you know. Yeah. He, and he's pumping that up completely. Like he's like the main guy saying like, you know, this, this is, this is what we got to do. He knows what's going on. Yeah, I'm sure he's got some sort of financial interest in these things, you know, being the... Yeah, I don't know that for sure, but I, I, I'd be surprised if he didn't. Yeah, you know, being the quote-unquote successful entrepreneur that he is. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's yeah, like, I know, he's like been I bankrupt, I don't know, like how many, five times in his career, and like, I mean, I don't know, I can go on and on about that guy. Yeah, I know, you you're, you being in New York City, I don't know how like, you know, how you, how you process all that, like this guy living living in your city you know, who, who represents New York to the rest of the world and, and just being out there so publicly saying the things he says, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty mind blowing. It's kind of embarrassing, really. I mean, cause you know, I, I, you know, I'm in contact with a lot of people from, you know, Europe and even Canada, right. you know, Canada and, you know, just, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's like very embarrassing that he, is has gotten as far as he has in the in the presidential yeah. you know race and, and they hold you accountable for your government too those europeans like, oh yeah they, big time. they come right at you <laughs> yeah totally you know so i don't know it's interesting this year you know i mean this this coming election is like very it's got me nervous you know i mean 
there's no clear candidate on either side, really, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's unlike any other I've seen before. And uh, I don't know what's going to come of it. I'm curious to see how this is all going to work out just like everybody else, but it, it's scary. There's nobody to like, you know, genuinely get behind. I like some of the ideas I'm hearing, but I, I don't believe for a second that like any one person can step in there without, without Congress helping, you know, and get anything done, you know? So if Congress is going to resist, nothing's going to happen. And, you know, we've seen that before. So just some of the particulars about the factories, like who, um, what's the story behind the publishing? Um, like how do you, you know, get that sorted out and everything? Yeah, the publishing, we, I was going along for a long time without really addressing that issue. Uh, but then, you know, I'd say this is probably a year and a half ago. We had, uh, we had worked it out with a, a small publisher who does stuff that's right along these lines. In fact, they had put out some books by, by a guy named Ralph Ham, who's, who's mentioned in the book and quoted in the book. He was uh, Bobby's counterpart. He was the vice president of the prisoners union that Bobby was the president of. And um, they put out several of his books and we were pretty happy to want to be aligned with him in his writings. Uh, but yeah, they, they were the ones who wanted us to to do things like change the title and all that kind of stuff. So, so um, I was really reluctant to do the DIY route because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So I sat there and I did the homework and I figured it out and it became clear to me that it would be not so bad. It would be pretty cool. I would have full, it was going to be a lot of work, but I'd have full control in that it would be worth it in the long run. So I, I had put together some proposals and sent them out to a few places, but only places I would genuinely want to work with. I didn't try to, you know, um, blanket apply, so to speak, to, you know, like every publisher out there. I just sent it to a handful, like less than 10. And, you know, some of them would get back to you and say, well, looks cool, but we're not doing anything. We're not publishing anything for at least another year. You know, things like that. So, you know, yeah. timing's everything, of course. So the more and more I looked into it, I said, this, well, this will be in my control and on my timetable if I do it myself. That all being said, if, at, you know, now that it's out and if, you know, we're able to succeed with getting, getting a number of these out there, somebody, of course, might want to reprint it and repress it and all that kind of stuff. So we'll see what happens. Um, that, that's a little bit further on down the road than I am right now. Is... um. Is there, is it, can you get it through Amazon or any of those outlets? It is. Yeah, it's on Amazon right now. So it's like, what I'm telling people is, is probably just go through Amazon. But if somebody's here in my area, lives near me, I can get them a copy for, you know, saving the shipping costs. And I can even sell it, you know, significantly cheaper, much like with a band. You can buy it online or you can just buy it straight from the band, save a few bucks and support them directly. So, you know, I leave it up to people's options. I, I can't really get into the business of doing like all the mail order and stuff. So yeah, I, that's a you know, I'm too busy for that. So I, yeah. I kind of tell people if they want to just go through Amazon. Now with Amazon, is it one of those deals where they fulfill the ordering and stuff or? Do you yeah, know? it's like print on demand. Oh, exactly. Okay. So oh. there's not a warehouse of like 5,000 books sitting on a shelf that you want it, they'll print it and send it right to you. Cool. And it's fast. It's just as fast as any other service. Have you ever think, thought about doing an audiobook version of it? I have, I have, yeah. um, haven't gotten to that yet. I haven't even released the Kindle version yet, but oh, right. that'll come, that'll come later on. That's the coming. audio book would be pretty, pretty cool, but I might have to pay you because you have a way cooler, like, um, audio <laughs> voice. My, uh, <laughs> I've always thought you should narrate some kind of movie or something, but, <laughs> you know, slightly sinister baritone voice. I might, I hate the sound of my own voice so badly. Like I'm not even going to listen to this podcast. Well, I will, but I, I, I cringe at the sound of my own voice on, on, tape so I, I think everyone, i'd have to get someone else to read it everyone does man everyone is uh it, it i think it's like a, a natural thing to like you know be 
offended by the way your own voice sounds because I can't, <laughs> dude, I can't bear to listen to my voice, especially yeah, my it's like I, voice. I didn't know that this is what you're hearing, you know, because it <laughs> yeah. sounds different to me. And I'm like, so um, I know that you probably do, when you hear your vocals isolated, you must, oh, must want to die. Yeah. I don't mind when it's mixed and like, you know, all it's got the reverb on it and everything. It's right. like, cause you know, I can kind of dig that, but like when I hear the shit, just like when they crank it during, you know, when you're, when you're tracking and you're, you're in the actual vocal session and it's like, you're trying to figure out which takes are the right ones when it's like real isolated, you know? And then I'm like, Oh man, that's, I can't even fucking stand listening to that shit. <laughs> when it's just totally naked like that. It's a bum with, all dry with like no, no <laughs> reverb on it. And it's just like, Oh man, it sounds like, I'm so whispering in my own ear or something like that, you know? <laughs> and then there's all like the weird, like you can hear yourself breathing between the fucking takes and everything. Yeah, it's sniffling like, and like, it's like <laughs> sketchy sounding. Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's fucking awesome though, man. And, uh, you know, it's, I was, I was really excited when like a couple few years ago when you were telling me about this project and I'm glad that it's finally, gotten above the ground and and people can actually get it do you have a website or anything like that or yeah that's um that's something i'm working on getting built right now i get somebody I'm, I'm meeting with them this week we're gonna create the website just so it's it's um because i know there's a lot of people aren't using facebook anymore or just aren't using it that much so i want to have an actual website um i'm figuring out what kind of content to have on there i'd like it to be um, multimedia you know yeah. but Obviously, like a mix of blog posts, links to articles, links to videos, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, not unlike your own website. Yeah. And but, you know, maintaining that I know is going to be a tall order. So I, I would love to have things like, you know, a guest blogger and you know, just any other cool content that's related to the subject, having it up there so that people will want to come back you know, with, there'll be fresh content. It's not just like, you know, set it up, throw up some pictures and, and say, buy the book. Yeah. I want people to be able to leave messages and um, interact with people and use it as a forum to meet people and discuss things with people and, you know, have a back and forth. So that's that's the next big step is, is getting the website up and running. So that, that's, um, you know, something I'll put in front of you, of course, as soon as that's happening. Yeah, man. Which should be very great. soon. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that, it's still important to have a website, I think, you know. Yeah, especially, you know, most people... For the last few years, it seems like everyone's just like, oh, I'm going to throw it on Facebook or I'll set up like a Facebook like, um, you know, event or some bullshit like that. And that stuff's effective, but there is something to be said still to have like your own space out there on the internet where you can control and, you know, and sort of control the content yourself and, and sort of, um, you know, be like the overlord of your own little domain there. You know, it's a good idea to do that. You know. Yeah, I mean, and and you know this. You, I mean, you're running your two separate. I mean, Savage Gold and Everything Went Black are two entirely separate entities, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so you know all about this. And, and uh, you know, what kind of feedback do you get from people doing that? You know, like. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh, like with with uh, Everything Went Black, it's more a lot of it really is on Facebook. As far as like the website is like, people go there and they stream it sometimes and they read the blogs, but the. Um, the interaction is primarily through the Everything Went Black Facebook page. Uh, with Savage Gold, people email me directly from the website because you have to go to the website to buy the coffee and the mugs and the T-shirts and all that stuff. So people spend way more time on on the Savage Gold website. Uh, I mean, with Everything Went Black, if all you want to do is like check out the podcast, you can just most people subscribe to iTunes. 
So you, right. never, you never really go back, you know? Right. It's like, all right, cool. It just shows up in my, in my iTunes. Um, unless there's a blog post, which I, I haven't been doing as many lately, but I want to start, my goal for this year is to start putting more writing out there too. Um, you know, I just have some articles that aren't related to the band and touring that I want to start put, putting up there. Um, right on. So that's been a little. And those solo bit. podcasts are really good. That one that you did, I, I'd like to see more of those. Yeah. Even if they're like thirty minutes. I was thinking about that because it seemed I got a pretty good feedback from that, and um, yeah, you know, I just got to figure out some things to talk about because you know most of my life is just a fucking day to day, just grinds like with you know doing series of tasks every day and then going to sleep. You know, <laughs> so it's like when when something's interesting that go it goes on then yeah i'll be happy to talk about it you know like maybe the record's coming out you know in a couple of weeks and that might be cool to talk about right. that maybe we have one of the guys from the band come on and you know someone we could throw some ideas around you know but yeah you know that's a cool definitely having a space for your to curate your own ideas is a good good thing to have you know most Just, definitely I, I go ahead oh do you um so now that this book is out do you have any plans of doing something else after this as a follow-up? Or that, That's a great question. And um, what, it's, it's a good thing that I'm struggling with. I'm, I'm thinking um, I have some vague ideas about um, documentary film um, in a field I've never gone into, but I do yeah. have access to some high-quality equipment. And um, I have some ideas about putting some scenes together and you know, spliced in with interviews um, maybe like a short film related to this yeah. would be really, really cool. Like almost like a lengthy trailer of some type mm -hmm. uh, to get out there. But um, I'm not really certain. Uh, if, if I were to write something, it would definitely be something shorter or a series of shorter things. Just kind of like, you know, one single issued focus topic and write from that angle. Um, these are some of the ideas I'd have. I still have music is always there on the back burner too. So if some type of opportunity came up, I wouldn't mind checking that out. Uh, but with my loss of Tim coming up, who knows what's yeah. going to happen with that. Yeah. Our friend I, Tim is moving to um, New Mexico and uh, right. Santa Fe. Yeah. He's going to Santa Fe probably next month. Damn. You know, and that's someone that's, uh, you know, my, my Boston crew, like my, my buddies have been Chris, Taz, uh, Niles, um, you know, who was, uh, I actually played in a band with Taz in Anodyne, the first version of that band. Uh, another guy named Chris Mountain and Tim Schmoyer, who Chris Lorden and Schmoyer used to be in a band together. Many different, several bands. Yeah, we. You know? I've been playing with him since 93, up until last year. Yeah, you know. That, that, that was like a marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was always like the rhythm section, you and Tim, and then you also play guitar at, at certain points too. Right, you right. Know? So he, he's been like, uh, you know, my uh, closest musical ally, of course, and long-term friend. So him leaving is, uh, you know, we'll stay in touch, of course, but uh, not having him just down the road is, is going to be an adjustment. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, he, he just dropped it on everybody a few months ago that he's planning to move out to the Southwest, you know, which is a beautiful part of the country, but fucking far away, man. <laughs> right. Well, he's going to have his studio there. So the idea is someday, you know, just We'll, we'll throw some tracks back and forth online and then fly out there and spend four straight days without sleep yeah. hammering something out. So that would be really cool. I look forward to that. No, that's awesome. You know? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about um, <clears throat> back in uh, when I live in Boston, when driving out the Tim, we, a lot of times we stayed at Tim's house. That was like our, uh, our home away from home whenever we were up there, like either be it on tour or when we recorded the, uh, the Heroes um, cover. 
you know, right. Tim, Tim recorded that and we stayed at his house. So we were constantly, every few months, there'd be a trip up there, stay overnight for a couple of days, hang out. Um, and you remember that gym that was in Watertown? I think you used to train there too. Yeah, I'm trying to, what was that called? I don't remember. Like Super Fitness or something Some, cheesy like that? Yeah, that was it. Um, that's still like an, a, a gym, you know? Because like when we drive out there to Tim's house, it was kind of on the way. And yeah. I, every time I drive by there, I'm like, yeah, for years, like the entire time I lived in Boston, I used to work out there. And you, you worked out there too for a while. Yeah, I did. And, and what's funny for anybody listening, not from Boston, is that's right in the very same area where the, you know, the, the post marathon bombing, all the, all the, um, when they captured the suspect and all the sh- neighborhood shooting and the, the helicopters and everybody was in lockdown. It was, uh, you know, very close to there. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. They're filming a movie right now and they asked Watertown if they could shoot the scenes right in the same neighborhood and they, they shot it down. They said, no. Wow. It's, it's like a Mark Wahlberg produced film. You know, what are your thoughts about Mark Wahlberg? I got kind of conflicting ideas about that, dude. <laughs> well, he's, I don't know if you know about this, but he's trying to get um, the governor basically to pardon him for, for his crimes that he committed when he was still Marky Mark and, you know, beat up some Vietnamese guy in a racially induced robbery. <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's like, you know, I'm a Hollywood star and I, I have a, the Mark Wahlberg Foundation. I mean, he seems like a good guy and, and you know, he's older now and he's a dad. But he's definitely like working that angle to get that taken off of his record. And then it'll probably work because, you know, he has wealth and privilege. And that kind of bothers me. I mean, I can't blame him for trying, but that kind of bothers me. Well, I don't understand what, what difference it even makes at this point, really. Right. I mean, right. You know, he's already sort of succeeded at it, what he's trying to do. And I mean, I don't understand why it would even matter whether or not he has a record or not, you know. I don't know. I guess some people want to like scrub themselves clean if they have the ability to do so. You know, even if it's just symbolic. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a criminal record that I'm trying to hide <laughs> or something like that. So I, I don't know. But it, it's a uh, but but speaking of that, you know, you know, t- kind of looping back around to Bobby, he still has when he got out, he he had a first degree murder conviction on his record. But he able he was able to write an appeal where um, it was shown from the trial transcripts is that the judge gave instructions to the jury that indicated that um, he was not presumed innocent. So the judge in 2003 said, well, that made it so his, his rights were violated, so I'm going to order a new trial. Oh, so you, you got 40 years later, witnesses are dead, people don't remember yeah. anything, mm-hmm. and the prosecution knows there's no way we can, we can convict this guy, and we don't want to just see him walk with a clean record. So what they did was offered him... If you plead guilty to manslaughter, your sentence will be time served. All right. So he said, yeah, okay, I'll plead guilty to whatever, just as long as I can walk out of the door sure. at the end of all of this. And so that's that's essentially what happened. So to this day, he has you know a manslaughter conviction on his record, which is significantly less than first degree murder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it shows that there was some kind of, you know, negligence involved. You didn't intend to kill somebody. And- fact of the matter is he never killed anybody ever yeah you know he didn't shoot anybody he didn't point a gun at anybody he was in a robbery but he was serving life without having killed anybody you know man it's funny how well not funny it's interesting how i mean basically damien eccles had to you know say he was guilty of a crime to get out of jail too 
which is right. like sort of, it sort of goes against logic, really. I mean, if you like apply everyday logic to the situation, it's like, doesn't really make any sense. But that seems to be the way the law operates sometimes. It is. And he was in this position where when they first said, if you plead guilty, we'll let you out. And he refused. You know, it's this thing called the Alford plea, where you can basically acknowledge that you had a role in it, but still maintain your innocence. Right. And he originally refused. He said, no, I'm not going to say I did it just so I can get out. But then he realized, well, you know, I'm on death row. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, so why don't I get out and then fight for my innocence from the street instead of from my cell? That's a good so, angle, for sure. That's a good plan. It was a good plan. And, and it was a real trip because I followed his case closely for so many years. And then when he got out, he immediately moved to Salem, which is right up here where yeah. I live. And, uh, you know, to look over and see him eating with his wife in a restaurant kind of blew my mind, you know, because I'd seen that guy on film so many times. I'd shown his film in class. So I've seen it more than the average person. I've probably seen it 30 times, yeah. you know, in the last 15 years. And, and uh, I've watched it so so in depth and read so much about it. And just to see him just kind of sitting there, knowing that nobody in this whole place knows that that kid was on death row. Yeah. <laughs> He's just sitting there having a meal. I didn't approach him. I didn't bother him. Uh, but it was just very odd that, you know, this kid from Arkansas who made this international story and I just looked over and he's like sitting there <laughs> in this, you know, regular small town in Massachusetts having having lunch kind of kind of blew me away a little bit. I did want to speak with him. Like I, I was a little bit awestruck. Sure. I'll yeah. admit that. Uh, but uh, I was respectful enough to just leave him alone. Yeah, totally, man. But it's just um, it's really interesting about how the law works. I mean, it's funny when when you go back and there's these cases being revisited, like um, Making of a Murderer. I'm sure you've seen that documentary. I have. Yeah, and I mean, I only I watched one and a half episodes, and it was too depressing. And I was like, man, I don't know. I I'm gonna finish watching it at some point. But the mindset that I had at the time that I was watching it was not the best mindset to be watching it because I was like, man, this is like too, too heavy for me right now. And like, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's left and right. There's all sorts of negligence. There's all sorts of, uh, and I'm not saying that I believe the guy's innocent or I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that there's been lapses in police procedure. Right. And that seems to be almost a common thing. Well, guilt or innocence aside, what you can definitely see from watching something like that is that he was not treated fairly. I think the police, gen, you know, genuinely believed he was guilty, and they were just trying to make it fit, and they knew they were breaking all the rules to do it. I do think they were trying to frame him, but it was because they genuinely, in their hearts, thought he was was guilty. You know, something that I always talk about because I have shown things like this and to my students before is films like this. You know, like the Jinx, the Staircase, any of these like ongoing murder mysteries. Um, you know, students are requesting if they can watch Making a Murderer right now, you know, and, and I might, I, we might watch it, um, is that we're only seeing what the filmmakers have chosen yeah. to show us. They, they have a narrative they want to put in front of us and we're accepting what they've shown us, but we have to remember what we haven't seen might change our views or perceptions on this. So if we weren't sitting on the jury where we heard everything over hundreds of hours um, you know, we need to be careful about, you know, the opinions that we're forming. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't know if, if you've heard about this case that that's um, from Massachusetts. This would have probably started. Were you living here in the early 90s, like 92? No, I wasn't here. I wasn't in Mass. I, I moved to Boston, I think, in like 95, 94, somewhere in that range. Yeah. 
Okay. So I might have known, depending on what it is, I may, I may, may or may not have known about it. Yeah. In, in 92, there were three kids who got drunk and they, um, they wanted to commit a robbery. They, one of them, the oldest one was 17 and he punched out just a random MIT student who was from Norway. And then the second kid stole his wallet and the third kid stabbed the guy. And so the, the stabber was 15. Oh. So he got tried as a juvenile and he did 10 years. But this kid, Joe Donovan, the 17-year-old who threw the punch, um, they tried him as an adult and he got a life sentence. Man. So he threw a punch and got a life sentence. And everybody said it was unfair. So this was the same as Bobby. It was felony murder. And he said, yeah, I was a drunk 17-year-old. I was being an idiot. And I did something bad. And I probably should have been, you know, went to jail for it. But the rest of my life for something I did as a stupid teen seems a little harsh. And it was only, um, you know, a year and a half or so ago that, that the law changed and said you can't give a life without parole sentence to a juvenile. So he thought he was never going to get out. He tried every legal maneuver. Nothing worked. And even the victim's family thought he should get out. Like they wrote letters from Norway saying wow. this is, doesn't make any sense. But none of that mattered. The governor wouldn't pardon him. And so he was just kind of accepting he was going to die in jail. But the, the law has now changed. And he was one of the very first ones they scheduled for parole hearing when they changed the law. They suddenly had to give an automatic parole hearing to guys who had been in prison for 30 years. You know, like you're 50 years old and now they're saying like, all right, rehearing your juvenile case. And so he was a good candidate to get let out. So right now he's scheduled to get out any day now. He's in a pre-release center and, you know, there's a lot of people pulling for him, but he's also pretty scared about getting out. Like he's sure. been in for so long. He's yeah. kind of frightened about what it's going to be like when he gets out. Yeah. It goes back to that time travel thing. It's like you fucking get propelled into the future. You know, I mean. If somebody was like, all right, Chris, we're going to take you now and throw you 40 years from now, I would be terrified, man. Oh, I, that'd like, be horrifying. Like, yeah. you, you get out, you don't, you, this guy's going to get out and not know how to use a cell phone. Yeah, totally. You know, or, or you know, going online will be confusing. Like, you yeah. have to be shown what that's all about. Yeah, because even back then, like, even like in the early, I didn't have a computer back then. I didn't get a computer until like the late 90s, man. You know, yeah, it's me like, too. You know, you didn't know. Yeah, you went to college that. with no computer, right? Yep. No, no computer. We had a notebook. And that was it, yeah. you know? No computer, no cell phone. Imagine no, that now. No internet. There was no, like, online shit. Like, I don't I don't even know what college is like now. But, like, I, I imagine that there's all sorts of online, like, you know, intro. Online classes. Really? Yeah. You can, your professor just opens up a chat room and you have to comment and he throws questions out. And you have to, you know, post your papers and other people give feedback. Weird. I mean, that's pretty common now, you know, like long distance learning is like a big trend in mm -hmm. universities are jumping on that so they can pull in students from all over the place, you know, all over the country. That's interesting. And outside of the country as well. You know, you just all log in at the same time and, and you do that. And, uh, but to imagine having no idea about any of that and then being released into the world and if you didn't have a strong family structure, th this guy, Joe Donovan, just happens to have a family waiting for him yeah. like with his bedroom already. Um, where would he go if he didn't have that? Yeah. You know, Pine Street Inn? Yeah, really. That's where he would go. He'd end up on the street probably. You know. Yeah. And that was Bobby's case too. He was lucky enough to have family to take him in. And he, he said, I wasn't going to go live in Pine Street Inn. I was going to go commit more crime if I had to, but I wasn't going to live in the gutter. Yeah. And you can't blame him for that. I can't blame him. Some people might have judgments about that, but I wouldn't live in the gutter either. I, I would do what I, I've asked students before, if you had no money and no job, 
would you do illegal things to help survive, you know, you and your family survive? And they all say yes. I was like, all right, well, that's some people's reality. It's not just a hypothetical question. So, you know, slow down on judging people who might sell some drugs or, you know, that they know that's risky, but, but don't, don't judge somebody who's in a worse situation who didn't have the same things you did growing up is, is the point. I just want them to think about that. I'm not trying to, you know, tell them how to think, but I'm just saying, consider this because at their age, you can tell that they haven't. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. These are not the kinds of things that you think about at that age either. You're pretty much black and white. You know, you have like a, you know, whatever family that you were brought up in, you have their values superimposed on you and you're not maybe as flexible with the way you see the world at that age. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I try to think back if, if um, I try to recall my own self at that age and if, and I'm sure I did, it, it's hard to really recall what my act, my own mindset was at that time, but I'm sure I saw things in much more black and white terms. You know, people sell drugs because they want to drive a fancy car. It's a lifestyle as opposed to, I do it because, you know, my mom's sick or I have a kid or whatever the reason might be. And you don't have an opportunity to get a decent job. You know, so if I think if somebody has an opportunity at a decent job, they'll take it, not risk going to prison and losing everything. Yeah. I'd like to think that some people I'm sure disagree with me, but I I would like to think that. There are definitely some people out there who who like the, uh, the life of crime, like vibe. You know what I mean? Like I, we, you know, we, there are people that you and I both know that are like came from good families that end up becoming like, you know, say for example, a, a biker or something like that, like in a gang, yeah. you know? Yeah. They didn't need to do that. They wanted to do that. Yeah. And you know, and that, and that's I, I, I know exactly exception. what you're talking about. Yeah. Those are the exceptions. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, Hey man, did you see that movie, uh, cartel land, that documentary? No, not yet. It's in my queue though. I definitely want to check that out. Definitely worth checking out, man. It's I think it won some sort of award, I think, for documentary film, some like Oscar possibly. I think so. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm hearing a lot of good things, but unfortunately I can't engage that conversation. I, I, I really want to check it out though. It yeah. Looks awesome. Yeah, it's a good one, man. I just watched that a couple of days ago. But um so getting back to music, man. So you you still every every now and then you get the uh, inclination to to make some music? Yeah, I mean, it never goes away. It just it becomes a matter of time and priority. Um, you know, like I work a lot of hours, obviously, and it, it, it became, you know, a luxury. Uh, it was something like if, if I have the night off, maybe I would want to relax or I'd want to work out. Uh, and you have to coordinate it with three, four or five other guys, yeah. however many people you're working with. And that's that was sort of the beginning of the end in my situation was that there was always somebody who couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in, uh, and that, that was, you know, I was ready to go, but I had to depend on other people. It wasn't a solo pursuit. And that, that started to be um, the reality of the situation. It was, it was no hard feelings when we stopped doing it. It, it was just, uh, you know, you get five grown men who have jobs and families and things like that. You, it's really, really, really hard to pull together. You know, the last time I played a show out and got home at 3 a.m., you know, I got to be up at work before f- I'm up before five every day. Yeah, 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 definitely. So that that's a pretty rough scene that sets me back a few days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the the idea of music is always there. I love it and and um I I'm unable to commit to it at that level. So right now, you know, since since I left like uh you know a year and a half ago, you know that I took up Muay Thai. Yeah. And that sort of is that's my solitary pursuit that's all in my control and that was me trying something new. So that's sort of what I replaced it with at least for the time being because 
you know, I've done music for so long, sometimes you need to step away from it and then re-engage it later and, and um, have, a, have a, you know, kind of a fresh take on the whole thing. I'll play music again one day, just not where I am right now. I'm just taking a break. That's good to hear, man, because, you know, you everyone knows those guys who their band breaks up and they sell all their gear and they're like, oh, man, I'm not playing again, you know, and they just get rid of everything and they never, you know, and then two years later, they're like, oh, I wish I hadn't sold all my shit and you know, now I want to start <laughs> playing music again. Yeah, I've seen that story play out many times. And so, I, you know, I have my stuff and um, I still do have like talented friends around me who I'm sure we're going to create a project when when the time's right. When the stars align, we'll do it. We've already talked about it. We just haven't actually done it yet. And so, again, I'll know when it's time. But I, 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 I don't want to try to do it when I can't give more of myself to it. Yeah. When you're just kind of doing it in this half-baked kind of way, felt sort of fraud. And for the last, you know, year or so I was doing it, that's what it sort of felt like. It's like, you know what, this isn't, if I can't put more time and energy into it, then I shouldn't put any. Yeah, no, that's a good You know what I mean? If you can't give it a certain amount, then it's like, all right, we'll do something else that you can. Yeah. Because you and I wouldn't have this close relationship had it not been for music, man. Like, I wouldn't even know any of you guys, really, if it wasn't for, for music, you know? All my close friends, yeah. um, it, save for one who's like a childhood friend. Yeah. Um, the people who I consider my inner circle, like yourself and Taz and Chris and those guys, all, um, you know, our friendship goes way past music. But that's where I met all those guys, you know. And, and I, I, we talked about this, I think, on the last podcast. I, I peeped you with a CBGB shirt on at the gym and I was like, I got to talk to that guy. <laughs> you know, it was still like that back then. Yeah. Yeah, it's because, it's, it's like, you know, I, I have... I have my issues with like the more cunty aspects of playing music, you know, dealing with, with, um, you know, just the, the details of operating a band. And there are times where I'm like, I fucking hate this shit. Like I hate like the fucking people that are, I have to deal with sometimes and, and like, you know, the fucking haters and people who, if you have a little bit of success, they want to fucking take shots at you and stuff like that. Like that kind of thing I fucking totally can do without. But then I think about how many great people I've met through playing in, in bands and going to shows and, you know, in general being involved in music and how all my best friends are actually, you know, I would never even know them had it not been for playing in music, playing bands and playing in bands and doing music. And that sort of makes, puts everything back in perspective, you know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's cool to hear that you're still, at least like, it's in the back of your head as something that you want to do because... Also, it's just like creating stuff, being creative is like a super, super positive thing, you know? And now the book's out of the way, which is also a huge creative endeavor. It's, it's cool, to, you know, to know that you're at least thinking about music. No, thanks. I mean, that, that's, to, that's what I was going to comment on is that, you know, I'm, I'm not actively creating music at the moment, but, you know, writing and things, I, I am surrounded by creative people and I want to continue to be, and, and I'm trying to be one myself. And that's, it's a, it's a mindset and way of thinking. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else, but I prefer to be around people who are forward thinking and have ideas in their head that aren't, you know, typical or mainstream and want to share those with other people. I love having good conversations. I love listening to other people who I feel like they know what they're talking about. You know, if you just shut your mouth sometimes and listen to somebody, you can extract some really cool ideas that, you know, if I listen to somebody, you know, sometimes like days later, I'm still processing what they were saying. And um, I really personally enjoy that. And, and um, music's been a form for that. And I guess I'm trying to do the same thing with writing. Like I told you with trying to promote, I'm trying to connect with other people much like you would through a music scene. 
you know, I'm sort of the new guy. Yeah. You know, I'm showing yeah. up and I don't really have any key contacts, but I'm looking for those. All it takes sometimes is that one person who can kick the door wide open for you. And then you might end up with some, um, you know, people that you end up having a relationship with for a long time. You know, so that's that's, I guess, a, a good analogy for where I'm at with writing and things like that right now is that uh, I want to get into that scene and I'm, I'm trying to establish that now. Yeah, it's funny, like just thinking back to the, you know, playing music again, it was like the, uh, you know, we, we were friends, but we really got to be good friends, I think, when we did that tour together. Like back in uh, I don't know, like fucking nineteen ninety five or ninety four or something like that. That was like when I, I believe it was twenty years ago this month. Yeah. If I really think it through, <laughs> it was like my old band Otis and then and your old band V Card went on tour together for like like fourteen days or something like that. And we went yeah. all the way down to uh, Gainesville and you know we had that, that yeah the East Coast thing. Yeah, it was an East Coast tour, and um, that was when you and I really got to be good friends. You know, just from all the ups and downs of that tour. You know, yeah, and just kind of, you know, in a small space, and like uh, you started riding with us in the van, and we we kind of engaged some long term talks, yeah. which unfortunately life today doesn't really afford the opportunity to talk to somebody for six uninterrupted hours. <laughs> but I remember we got to do that a yeah. number of times. Like we talked a lot, and um, there was no weird downtime stuff. It was just like this natural flow back and forth. And I remember that struck me pretty quickly because when somebody meets you for the first time, whether you realize it or not, you could appear to be standoffish, you know, and you, you know, you get that <laughs> you're nodding, yeah. but, but, um, very quickly though, just once we started talking, you know, all that goes away. And, and, um, it was really cool to, to meet somebody who like, otherwise just, you know, you've played with a million other bands and I've played with a million other bands. We were both referencing bands that nobody even talks about anymore, but, 20 years later, we're, we're still connecting at this level and it's really cool. You know, yeah. it's like sort of, we just sort of passed through each other's lives and it could have stopped right there. But I, I really, you know, um, I'm happy with the fact that music was the starting point, but then it opened up all these other things too. Yeah, totally. You know, so, um, just, uh, just to read sort of summarize everything. Um, the book is now available and you can get it on Amazon, right? It is available on Amazon. I'll have the website out very soon. I'll link that up. Um, if anybody's interested, they can check out the factory that the page is on Facebook and um, I'm sure they can link it through you Yeah. as well. Um, so that's out there and I'm always putting new things, any events, um, this podcast will be posted there obviously, you know, so it's, um, I'm trying hard to make myself reachable and available for anybody who needs books, wants to set something up, wants to talk, anything like that. Um, yeah, so that that's something to look for. I don't know what the the website's you know the domain name will be just yet, but it'll be something with factory in it, of course. Cool. Yeah. You know what? When you get started with that, I can send you the actual um, code for the player. You know, the streaming player, so that you don't just you don't have to just put like a link. You can actually embed the you know the player that will play the podcast episode. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. I'll I'll have to come down there to you where you are right now to your yeah. studio and yeah, pick your brain about some tricks of the trade. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like it's 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 actually they make it real easy. It's just a, basically a line of code that you know it's an embed thing, and you just copy it and paste it, and it shows up as like a little looks like a little player. You know, the stop, start, pause, like all that shit. Yeah, right on. It's amazing the things they can do these days. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I always get angry that this stuff didn't exist when I was younger, and I was like really hungry to investigate certain things. Uh, 
on the one hand, it was kind of cool that things were underground and you had to put some effort into discovery. You know, I know a lot of people our age talk about that frequently, uh, but I, I, it's true. It, it really is. There was something more special about it. It wasn't uh, just a few keystrokes away. Yeah. But I would, I would still much rather have it the way it is now. Of course. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like I, I go back and forth on that too, because um, a few months ago I was at my parents' house and a large quantity of my stuff is still there. Like, um, you know, just from moving around, I have like boxes of magazines and I opened up one of those boxes and there was, um, like, uh, old issues of, uh, your flesh magazine, which is like, uh, yeah. you know, a music Well, I was more than that. It was like your flesh. I found great God pan, like this, uh, magazine devoted to like Southern California lifestyle. And it talks about like, you know, like black flag and, you know, came out. I don't, I mean, I'm, I don't know how many issues came out, but um, it was like some mid 90s, like shit. You know, there was always in, interviews about Charles Manson and, you know, the fucking, you know, Bobby Boussoulet and all, like stuff like that and all the shit that happened in Southern California. But of course, there was always like ads for like Lookout Records and, you know, you go back to those old advertisements for records that came out in like 1993 and you're just like, you know, out now, like Jawbox, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And it was like that, the zine culture, I think, from that era was something that is, I, I miss that, man. I really do. I miss like zines. I know there's Me blogs too. and, but like everyone can have a blog, man. And that's, that's, I think, a bad thing because there isn't that like when you when you were running a zine when somebody was doing a zine there was still an editorial process that went through it you right know, you know you had to edit it and then there was just the um obstacle of producing that on a regular basis weeded out a lot of people you know what i mean like you had to know about design you had to know about how to lay this you know the magazine out how to get advertisers like shit like that right. nowadays it's like anyone with a half-assed opinion about something and oh, i have a blog check it out you know and it's like right. that's cool in one way but in another way it just clogs up the universe with like uselessness and sort of insipid opinions about things you know right because it's so accessible and anybody could do it i mean i give full respect to a guy like al quint from suburban yeah. voice that guy worked so hard to you know, started off photocopying that stuff at his job and, and making sure that it got out to people at shows. And, totally. and um, you know, that guy was critical for, for getting things out there. And, you know, now he's, he's modernized. He, he's, um, you know, he does his radio show. He has his podcast. And I think, he, I don't know if he does even hard copies of the magazine anymore, but he, he was one of those guys that put the effort into doing that. And, uh, you know, that was such a huge source of information for someone like myself and, you know, the kids I grew up with. Uh, but that seems to have dissipated. Like his field got crowded around him and that's not his fault. Yeah. You know, and it made, made it harder. You know, he still has the credibility of a guy who's been around forever. Uh, but, you know, back then nobody was doing it and he, he decided to put in the effort and it was great. It was awesome. And, and you're right. It, it's uh, anybody with a big mouth and people can go on and trash talk and, you know, give a bad review to a band or, you know, say, say whatever they want. And on the one hand, you can gather all this great information that you wouldn't have otherwise accessed, but you're right. The other side is just this insipid bullshit that you don't want to hear. Yeah. You know, and it's like, that's the one thing I miss too, you know? And also, you know, just finding out about stuff, like going to, like, there's a couple of record stores around here, but none of them are really the kind of record store that I really want to go to. You know what I mean? It's like, for example, like, you know, 
the kids will have their say or something like that, you know? Like, that was a milestone, you know? It was a landmark in, in Boston. Or um, Trash American Style in Connecticut. Um, right. You know, Armageddon, later on, Armageddon Record Shop in Providence. Like, places like that where you can go and there was, like, people that were on the same page as you, you know what I mean? Like, the same sort of, like, you know, trip, like, of hardcore punk, metal, whatever, you know, weird music, you know, and uh, the guy that run, run, ran those places is someone you can talk to, like, for example, Malcolm, like, I, I have a pretty good friendship with him from the years, he used to be the owner of Trash American Style, it's like, you know, I'd buy a record, and, and he would be like, oh, you like that band? So you should check out these guys sometime, and, like, that's how my information, my, like, you know, palette for music was developed through that guy, you know, it's like... absolutely. You know, he also, he was, like, this huge, like, Manson, like, bootleg guy. Like, he had all these, like, bootleg cassette, cassette tapes of um, Manson's, like, music that he made. Like, it's, like, crazy shit that's not even, it's not even available, like, on, on, it's not, it's, like, legit stuff that he recorded in jail that, like, leaked out, and he would bootleg it. And I have, like, tons of these cassettes of, um, of stuff that he recorded in jail, like, it was just an acoustic guitar that's not released on, like, you know, lie or that follow up to that that came out a bunch of years ago, and um, that's what I mean. Like he, like how the fuck are you, online you can't find out about this shit. You gotta like talk to somebody to know what the fuck's up. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Al Quinton was that guy for me. I'd go yeah. into Rocket Records, and the guy would be playing cool music in the store, and he would kind of like suss out that you were into it too, and he'd come right over and be like, "Hey, listen, you, you're gonna buy this record today, and you put it on right then and there, and listen to it." And he had like, "Can I say?" You know, I was like, all right, I bought it right away on the spot. And it's like, I still listen to that record 30 years later. And you know, I give him credit for that. He, he was onto that and he was more than happy to share what he knew with like, you know, I was a kid, but the, I don't know if he has any idea how influential that was to a lot of people. You know, I assume he does, but like, I still like to, you know, put it out there that, that it was just, it was a game changer. Al Quint has a podcast. He's, he's got a sonic overload. Okay. And you know, he, it's he's DJing with commentary. It's really good. I'll check it's all that kinds out. of different stuff. He puts on everything. Yeah, is it on iTunes or? Uh... Uh, I just stream it right through. It's uh, SonicOverload.net. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, um, if you follow him on Twitter or something, he's always posting when he has a new show up. Cool. I should do that. I should follow him. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a record. There was a seven inch that had Tim, our friend Tim Schmoyer, and your former bandmate uh, Scott Vingers and Al Quint, right? Yeah. Yeah, they did a couple of songs. Uh, I forget what they called it, but yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. That's another thing that sort of fell fallen to the wayside is the 7-inch single. Yeah. You know, that seems to be something that people aren't doing much of these days. Yeah, I, I don't even have a, you know, a working turntable right now. And I still have a lot of records, and it's a shame that they're just sitting there. And, you know, I'll admit that I can't wait to digitize them so I can listen to them again. But they're just sitting there. And, um there is something really, really cool about vinyl. It's, it's, uh, it's very, you know, it's very retro at this point. You know, it's a space issue having all these record albums that I moved 10 times and had to bring all these things with yeah. me and, you know, had them stored somewhere where they got scratched or beat up. Um, so that's, that's another experience that I actually feel bad for younger people getting into it that they're not going to have. You know, you remember what it was like looking through the lyric sheets and looking at the pictures and just being in awe and that that experience is pretty much all done. Yeah, I think kids still buy 
like I know just with the with tombs like going on tour, like kids are still interested in picking up vinyl, you know. And sure. Even, and, but you got to give them a, a way of of getting a digital version. Like you got to give them the download code too, you know, which is understandable. Right. But I think people still like vinyl. I mean, I know that we sell a ton of vinyl on tour usually. Sure. But um, but yeah, it is it is a dead a dead medium for the most part. No, you guys do it right though. You're giving people a package that they want to check out. I think you knew in your mind if I was like a teenager or a young person opening up this you know double album, like what would I want to see? I want to see cool artwork. I want to hear these like scary riffs. I want to like I want to look through. I want to see visuals to associate with the music. Yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the difference now. It's like. You know, back when I was a kid, I bought uh, Black Sabbath Master of Reality, and it just was like the fucking record. You know what I'm saying? It was like, <laughs> you get, like it's the sleeve, like, uh, you know, the dust jacket, and then the, the record, and that was it. You know? Yeah. There was no extras or booklets or any of that stuff. Now right, that doesn't fly. When you bought fly. Kiss Alive 2, it was so awesome. Yeah, definitely, man. You know, had the gatefold and all that. Um, but nowadays, that can't, that doesn't fly. Like, you can't just give someone a record. You got to give them, like, a download code, and you have to give them some sort of cool package, like, nice-looking artwork and, and something that, a tangible thing that is, like, this, like, tactile sort of document, you know? It's not just, like, okay, cool, man, here's this LP sleeve. We'll, like, you know, cut some cocaine on it, and that's it. <laughs> it's, like, you have to have something that's going to hold up, you know? But think of how like how engaging like Black Flag's imagery was. Well, but yeah, that's exactly. And there you go. There, there was sort of like the proto version of that when you had like Raymond Pettibone's artwork, um, which fit so well with the sound of the band and the message the band had, you know. And so yeah, that that they, you can even say that maybe Black Flag were the um, the kind of purveyors of that concept, which was later manifested, you know, once like. Everything sort of, you know, like like for today, you know, because they, they kind of were the out of especially out of the hardcore scene, like punk scene, you know, there was like you know like burning cop cars and like you know like fucking Reagan, you know, <laughs> like shit like that, you know, <laughs> but like they actually had like this not like a very um, esoteric sort of vibe to their imagery, you know, it wasn't like your your typical like punk rock, you know, stuff. But it, it kind of scared you at the same time which is why like i think you know a band like black sabbath or somebody was, was so awesome because you were sort of terrified but at the same time extremely interested black flag was a scary band because like the first time the first record i got by them and this is and this this is like a, an actual testament to the times is um i remember i heard black coffee uh at a friend's house and i um was uh looking for a black flag record and I, and I also heard Black Flag on the Repo Man soundtrack. And um, I'm like, all right, cool. Got to find a record by this band. This is, sounds like something I'd be into. I went to uh, a record store in my hometown called the Book and Record Store. And um, they sold books and records. <laughs> and they had one Black Flag album, and it was Family Man. That was the only Black Flag album they had. <laughs> so that's the one I bought. And I, I put that yeah. on, and I was like, what, like 16 years old, I think, at the time. And I was just like, what? I don't, I didn't, is this even music? Like, what the fuck is the, the spoken word part was terrifying, you know, salt on a slug. And I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, like, and then the instrumental side was, I, I, I don't think I, I wasn't, my, my brain hadn't developed enough to really comprehend that. And then the song Armageddon Man was like a terrifying song to me. 
and I didn't listen to that record for like probably a few weeks. And then I started thinking about it more and more. And that's when I started realizing what I actually had in my hands. Yeah. The, um, the first thing I heard was, uh, you know, TV party. And I thought it was like this fun, like jokey punk rock band and stuff. So I went out and I bought, um, my war. (laughs) Yeah. Which is completely different. (laughs) And, And then it was way more intense than I was expecting, but I loved it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, you're saying you just start kind of thinking about it and you're, you're way too young to really process it, but you know, there's something there. You like viscerally react to it. And, uh, I had that same experience, but I was misguided because the first exposure to it was something that was probably a little more mainstream for them. Not realizing it was like a tongue in cheek joke. I just thought it was sort of like this partyish kind of fun song that was a little brash, not realizing that that wasn't representative of their whole trip. You know, but that's what drew me in. That's yeah. where I first heard about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're an interesting band, man. I mean, aside, I mean, besides from being like my favorite band of all time, it's like the 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 the, the mythology behind them and the story and how much of an impact they actually made on music. I think is something that somewhere somebody, maybe after Greg Ginn dies, has to document that in a real way because I feel like as long as Greg Ginn is around. Mm-hmm no one's really going to get the full story on that band. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's even beyond like a transcends music. And I know that you've applied this to your life. If you're going to do something, commit yourself to it and do it yourself. Don't wait for other people, you know, to help you out or to do things for you. Take full control of it. It might not be perfect. It might be ugly, but make it happen. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the lesson that I drew from it. And I know you definitely have, you've, oh, yeah. you've lived by that. And so that's that's a uh, something that will always stick with me. So it's more than just like, yeah, those were some cool riffs. That was a good song. Much more than that. Yeah, I always uh, I always get a kick out of people who try to like discredit Rollins. You know what I mean? And, and be like, oh, well, you know, I like the you know Keith Morris stuff better. And it's like, yeah, I love Keith Morris. I love the Circle Jerks. But I think that like his contribution to Black Flag, though important didn't really resonate with me as much as the Rollins era of the band. You know what I mean? Like the only, I think Dez comes to second, second place in Black Flag Singers. You know what I mean? I'd agree with that. You know, Dez, Dez is pretty badass, you know, but Keith, I think was always better with Circle Jerks. You know, once again, man, thanks for, uh, you know, giving me some time on your Saturday afternoon and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, we'll get some people interested in the, in the new book and, um, you know, I have a copy. It's great. It looks awesome. It also has a little subtle black, well, maybe not too subtle black flag reference on the cover. <laughs> yeah, I figured you'd like that. But uh, Mike, thanks so much for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. You know, even though uh, our connection was kind of getting a little crazier at the end, we'll we'll talk again soon, you and I. But uh, thanks for for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell other people about what I have going on. And uh, you know, always a pleasure. Definitely. All right, All right Chris. Have a good day, man. Take care. All right. Take care, Mike. See you later.
you know. I'm like, can you pull your camera down to hair? I could just see your eyes. No, just, <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> it's, it's like sketchy. Like, <laughs> like, there you go. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, cool. Right on. Yeah. I only just. Uh,